In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Halakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I talk about the book, the past week, the book for this week is Sway, The Irresistible Pull of Irrational Behavior by Ori Brafman and Ram Brafman. It's not a book I've read before. I was just at the bookstore last night and grabbed a few books and this one seemed interesting. So I picked it up. So again, that's Sway by Ori Brafman and Ram Brafman. The book for this past week that I'll talk about tonight is The Psychopath Test by John Ronson, The Psychopath Test, A Journey Through the Madness Industry. Uh, The book was definitely a page turner. It was easy to read. But at the same time, um, John Ronson is a journalist and a very good writer. And at times I felt like it did not tackle the concept of psychopathy or um, antisocial personality disorder, which I'll talk about is the closest probably diagnosis we have currently in the the DSM or that's an official diagnosis, but at times I felt that it wasn't as scientific. He did talk about different studies here and there, but it wasn't a systematic look at what psychopathy is. It was more his experience of learning about it, which was quite entertaining and interesting, and I still did learn a lot. Um, But in that way, I felt that it was not what I expected, I guess. I actually thought it was going to be more about looking at how, um, of course, we know that many people in jail we consider them psychopaths. Sometimes we say they say 15 to 25 percent, or maybe even more, of people in jail um, have this. While only one percent of the general population tends to be uh, considered a psychopath. Uh, but I thought I was going to go into even more how people in sometimes high positions are psychopaths. And he did talk about that, especially uh, one CEO who he followed. Uh, very closely, or he interviewed and talked about. And that was quite interesting. But overall, I guess maybe I expected a little bit something different, but still was thoroughly uh, entertained and engaged by the book. So it is a good read. It's uh, He kind of interviews different people throughout the book, and he's a good storyteller in how he talks about those interviews. But again, the book in a way was less, I don't want to say scientific, but in a way systematic than I might have expected. So for what it's worth, it was a very good book. And I'll talk about what he does discuss throughout the book, but the psychopath test. So what does it mean to be a psychopath? We've heard that term used before sometimes colloquially. Someone might call someone a psychopath or uh, sometimes maybe we've heard it in in different contexts. But to be a psychopath, to really look at what that means, uh, this is someone who lacks, and also uh, sociopath is also a synonymous word. They use both So you might hear both of those used. And as I mentioned before, the most uh, closest diagnosis that correlates with it would be antisocial personality disorder currently. But um, 
it's someone who lacks remorse, lacks empathy. So empathy means they have a very hard time putting themselves in other people's shoes or caring what other people feel or think or experience. And they lack remorse, meaning they don't feel guilty if they do something that hurts someone else. They have no real feeling of guilt about what happened. They can also be very charismatic and because of that manipulative. So they see people as a means to an end uh, and they see people as just a thing that helps them get whatever it is that they want, whatever pleasure it is. And in the book, he talked about some interesting studies, some that were done by Bob uh, or Robert Hare, sometimes he calls him Bob, throughout the book, who is a Canadian psychologist. He, he developed what is where the title of the book comes from, The Psychopath Test. This test that is used, it is called the Psychopathy Checklist or the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Revised is the newest edition that a clinician could use to help determine if someone is a psychopath. And it's a 20-item um, inventory, meaning that it's not 20 items that you ask the person and they answer. In this case, it's 20 items that the person who is evaluating the individual gives a score from, I think it's zero to three, and then you give you get a total score, and based on that, you determine if this person is a, is a psychopath or not. But the Canadian psychologist Robert Hare, um, who was talked about a lot through the book, he did some tests on inmates, some of whom were psychopaths and some were not, and he found some interesting findings. For example, um, this was in the days where they could still give strong electric shocks during research. Now they can't do that. But he gave the individual, and he told them, I'm going to give you a very strong electric shock. And the people who were not psychopaths were bracing themselves for the pain. As you can imagine, if I told you in 10 seconds and I counted down, you're going to get a strong electric shock. You'd probably start gripping the chair, um, you know, making a face, whatever it might be before the shock came. But they found that the psychopaths, as, as uh, Robert Hare says, didn't break a sweat. They didn't care. They were just, okay, the shock's going to come. They didn't think about it. And when the shock came, they made a small reaction, but there wasn't much. They didn't seem to react much. And interestingly, when they then came back and said, we're going to do it again, um, the people who were not psychopathic were very, again, not looking forward to it and making a strong reaction, but still they had no reaction, the psychopaths. There was no effect on them. And one way they talk about this is showing that they're not really uh, responding to things like punishment because they don't really care. They, they're saying they don't learn from that. They don't learn from the mistakes. So they have the same reaction again. Now, they, they say that it could be because their amygdala, which sometimes we consider an emotional part of the brain. And now when I talk about parts of the brain being specifically for one thing, um, I'm reminded of the book, uh, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, where she discussed research showing that re we really can't say one part of the brain does one thing or that one thing happens in only one part of the brain. Either of those things don't seem to be true completely, but nonetheless, um, sometimes the amygdala is considered more of an emotional part of the brain or a big part of emotions or emotional reactions like fear, especially. And um, Bob Hare mentions that he thinks that this part of the central nervous system, this part of the brain in the psychopaths doesn't function as it should, uh, alerting the brain or anticipating unpleasantness that we uh, kind of take for granted. If you see a snake, you have a reaction. In them, we, we don't see the same thing. And I've read about psychopaths in other um, books as well. And sometimes when they talk about the crimes they commit, and he mentions it a bit in here too, sometimes we say they're cold-blooded even in killing. 
meaning that most people that commit murder, even if it's premeditated, it's it's an act or a, a crime of passion, meaning that they are so angry or they feel betrayed or whatever it might be that they then take action and they kill someone. And so they're, they get hot, they're hot-blooded, they're nervous, they're scared, they're excited, all those kinds of feelings when they're going to kill. Whereas a psychopath, and this is usually a serial killer would fall in this category, can do it in a very calculated way. They don't really think much about the feelings of the person or what's happening or what they're even doing. They can even actually, what can be scary is their pulse can be relatively normal when they're committing the crime, the murder or whatever it is, because they're not having this emotional reaction to it. And that's what can make it so scary is that for some of these individuals or uh, people who are extreme in this trait or this personality type, um, they don't really feel much even when doing something horrible. Now, even as I'm saying this, uh, I want to be careful. And there's a point in the book where another psychologist, not Robert Hare, um, says that he thinks that sometimes psychologists like Dr. Hare talk about psychopaths like they're another species, like they're not even human. And he thinks that could be a problem. And I can agree with that. We have to be careful about how we talk about any group, um, but uh, including people who suffer from psychopathy. But at the same time, they commit such heinous acts that it's hard to try to be so compassionate in how we discuss them and look for the positive. So it, it is a difficult topic to talk about. But let me go through the checklist to give you an idea of some of the things that are part of what might make someone qualify as a psychopath. Um, the first item is glibness or su superficial charm. As I mentioned, they can be very charming, uh, very charismatic. They're very good at manipulating people using that. Second is a grandiose sense of self-worth. So this is uh, something that correlates with narcissism too, thinking of themselves as better than others, which again, when you take that feeling that you're better than others, along with not caring about other people or what happens to them, you can see how that could be a bad uh, combination. Also, pathological lying is on the list, so they're prone to lying. As I mentioned before, another one is lack of remorse or guilt. So they can do something horrible. You ask them about what happened, and they might say something like, you know, the guy I killed, he kind of deserved it, or he was wrong, so it doesn't really matter. So they kind of find a way to make it like it doesn't matter. Lacking empathy, so that relates to this one, where they really don't care much about what happens to other people or can't put themselves in other people's shoes. Um, promiscuous, promiscuous sexual behavior is another one. Early behavior problems. So with a lot of people, even for antisocial personality disorder, you usually or you pretty much have to see signs from an early age, whether it's getting into fights, breaking the law, even hurting animals is a very common thing you'll see. Um, failure to accept responsibility for own actions. So things happen, but somehow it's never their fault. So on and on. And there's 20 of these that are included in the list to see if someone is a psychopath or not. Now, what makes it significant and why this psychopath test is so important is that what can happen is if someone scores high on this test and scores in the range that they consider being a psychopath, then if they're deemed a psychopath, usually it's not something that's considered changeable, meaning that it's in a way considered a permanent label because most psychologists and psychiatrists will say that basically once a psychopath, always a psychopath, that it is something that can't be changed. And in general, things like personality disorders are considered much less malleable, much less uh, something that can be changed and much more fixed. So this is where 
we get um, a bit of the controversy that he talks about in this book is some people are in jail and if they're considered a psychopath, once they get that label of psychopath, essentially they're considered um, needing to be in jail for life, having to be essentially removed from society because they won't learn from their mistakes, they can't change, they don't care about others, so they will reoffend. It's just a matter of time. And he shares stories where that did happen, where they did release someone who was a psychopath and they went and killed. Even one story where they gave this person just a few hour break to get out of prison and come back. And within that time, I think it was within like 20 minutes or something, he'd already killed someone and chopped them up. So um, we can see that there is legitimate risk here. And there is an argument to be made that we might have to remove some people from society because they can't be trusted. But then at the same time, like any uh, psychological disorder or issue, these things are on a spectrum. So it's not that every psychopath is the same or everyone who suffers from psychopathy is going to be the same. They can be different and some might be uh, more okay than others. Throughout the story, he follows this guy named Tony, or I think he gives him the name Tony, who's in a jail in a prison in, um, in Britain, Great Britain, and he claims that he actually faked being mentally ill, faked being a psychopath to get out of jail and thought he would then be released more quickly. But actually now he found that he is stuck in jail forever because of that label. And now he's he claims throughout the book, and you revisit the story throughout the book, that he was faking it and he's not sick, but now they've given him this label and whatever he does, they assume he's trying to manipulate them, that he's not uh, telling the truth. It's part of his illness. And really you don't know uh, what is going on. Is this guy faking it and or not? And even the writer, John Ronson, through his relationship with this man, you see him not be sure. Is this guy uh, really a nice guy that just kind of pretended to be sick and now they labeled him as sick? Or is he actually now tricking me? Because we know they're very manipulative and good at tricking people and getting people on their side. And maybe that's what he's doing and he's not sure. Eventually, actually, at the end of the book, you see that this guy, Tony, gets released and I don't know it does I don't know what's happened to that man since then, but he's been released and you know, he thinks that John seems to think the writer John Ronson seems to think that you know what, he might be a little bit of a psychopath, a semi psychopath, but he's not like the others. And so it, it, you know, it's hard to say. So it was an interesting book and as I said, I learned about different aspects of this checklist and the effects and um how maybe it could be changed or we have to be careful because he talks about how some people go and take one class on this checklist and then they're out there giving this um, this instrument to different people and then they might label them as a psychopath and that label might not ever go away and might change their life forever. And we have to be careful about that. What What's the cutoff? What is going to be uh, the level that we say once you pass this, you're not allowed to be in society anymore. So that was interesting. He also talks a bit about some of the changes that have occurred in psychology and psychiatry, including the overdiagnosis of childhood bipolar disorder and how that's led to even some deaths through overdoses of the medication. Um, and in that way, there was a part of the book that I felt might have been too skeptical or judgmental of the psychiatric and psychological community. Of course, I'm a member of that community, so maybe I'm a bit sensitive to that, but in some ways there were some attacks that I thought were a little bit one-sided and didn't really give the whole side of the story. Now, at the same time, it's important for us to always be skeptical of any field 
any type of science, especially one that has effects on people's lives the way that psychology and psychiatry does. So I think it's good to open up those discussions, but at times I felt it was a bit one-sided. So overall, a very interesting read, The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. If you haven't read it and you want to uh, see an interesting look into a very dark, it's kind of a funny look in some ways. He tries to be humorous, but about one of the darkest diagnoses we have in psychology. You can read that book. The book again for this week, though, is going to be Sway by Ori Braffman and Ram Braffman. I'll be talking about that on next Monday's show. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Galakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. In the previous segment, I was talking about the book, The Psychopath Test, and talking about what it means to be a psychopath um, or to have psychopathy. And it made me think about, as he also discusses in the book, this idea of diagnoses in general and having these labels that are placed on us or placed on other people. Um, And the negative effect this can have in how people look at us. Of course, sometimes even the negative effect we uh, judge in the way that we judge ourselves also. And to me, this is related to, of course, a big part of the stigma that is attached to mental illness that I try to talk about so much on this show or aim to have this, the theme of the show be that, that we talk about issues, um, whether they're diagnosable conditions or not, uh, and realize that everyone is dealing with something. We all have issues. We all might not necessarily fit a diagnostic criteria diagnosis, but we all have some issues and we shouldn't judge people just based on these labels. Um, So to begin with, many people you know and very likely yourself have or at some time have suffered from some mental illness, even that it's diagnosable. I mean, when it comes to diagnosis, I think it's very important for us to have these diagnostic categories and different diagnoses and and to talk about them and, and understand because it gives us a common language. So to clinicians from opposite sides of the world can talk and know what each other is talking about. And that is very good. However, at the same time, diagnoses are not so black and white. It's not like some things in medicine where you can do a blood test and know for sure something is this or is that. We don't have that same type of clarity in psychology. So it's not to say diagnosis isn't important. Absolutely can be. But that it doesn't mean everything. It's not the most important thing. And I think because we're so used to that in medicine, that we want to know what the diagnosis is and then know specifically the treatment, it's not always the same in psychology. Yes, if you know certain diagnoses, like if you have bipolar 1 disorder, it's critical that you be on medication. Uh, Now, some people might argue against that, but everything that I've read and when you talk to most uh, experts in the field, they say, yes, you, you need it. It's a necessity to be able to live a functional life. That's important. But um, with a lot of other things, if it's a diagnosis, maybe we maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's an issue that you can work on. And also, of course, the diagnoses change over time. Every, uh, every few years, they come out with a new, for example, DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders here in the United States. 
and things change. Sometime recently, Asperger's was considered, before it was considered its own diagnosis, now it's part of autism and not a separate diagnosis. And some people were upset about that. So the labels themselves aren't so, um, it's not like there's something that came from the sky that we know are for sure the truth. They're just what we understand or what people who are in charge of these diagnoses think makes the most sense based on what they've observed, the statistics, and what they think uh, makes the most sense. But coming back to just having these issues or labels to begin with, um, I'm also reminded of the book I did recently, uh, A First Rate Madness by uh, Nasir Ghayami, where he talked about how many of our greatest leaders, such as Churchill, Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, um, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., dealt with serious mental illnesses from um, depression to may even bipolar disorder and uh, or hyperthymia, as he uh, discusses, and how this actually wasn't something negative. It was a strength, something that made them even better uh, at, at leading, especially in times of crisis. That was essentially his thesis of the book, that in times of crisis, we actually need leaders who are a little bit mad, a little bit um, even mentally ill or sick or whatever you want to call it, because they have some abilities that will help them deal with the crisis more than someone who's quote-unquote quote unquote, more normal. And I found that really fascinating because when we think of, when we call it even mental illness, we illness means just something negative. But when we look at some things in psychology, things that we consider illness aren't just harmful. They might be negative, especially in extremes, or have big effects on us that can we have to manage. But to think of it as just negative is, to me, a mistake. For example, someone who is depressed, and this is something that comes up a lot in the book, uh, First Rate Madness, has the ability to be more empathic and connect with other people because they've had their own struggles and difficulties. They also can be more realistic, as he talks about in the book. So um, whereas Chamberlain was not a, thinking that the threat of Nazi Germany would be something to worry about and that he thought he can negotiate diplomatically with them. Uh, Churchill was aware that this was a serious threat because he'd experienced depression and uh, really dark times. He had the black dog of depression with him. So he knew something was up. He could see the negative. And that's something that actually is shown in, in research with people with depression. At times we talk about them having a negative worldview. And I think in some ways they still do, even though what I'm going to say after this might seem to contradict that. But they do tend to find the negative. Sometimes when you work with someone who is depressed, they just see the negative in everything. They expect negative things to happen. Beck talked about the uh, negative cognitive triad, uh, the negative feelings about this and predictions or thoughts about the self, about the world and about the future. And you do see that with people who are depressed, that, oh, nobody likes me which again, of course, nobody likes you is not the truth. Maybe you feel everyone gets disliked by some people, but nobody is in that way, you know, although they're saying it kind of in a way, um, not playfully, but they're saying it almost 
uh, not literally, but it's still bordering on a delusion. If you really think nobody likes you, some people are going to like you, some people might not. Or I always make mistakes, or I'm so bad at this, or I'm never going to amount to anything. And these are some of the thoughts that a depressed person can have, or even suicidal, take my own life. My life is not worth living. It's never going to get better. So I do see things in a negative way. But also some research shows that in some ways they can be more realistic, which is interesting. So they actually might be closer to the truth than others, and sometimes so-called normal people might in some ways have a delusion of thinking of themselves as better than they are, which is what the research shows. You ask most people, how good-looking are you? How smart are you? How this, how that? And when you tally up all the results, you always get higher, if it's any good quality, higher than 50%, which doesn't make sense. But people overall think they're better than average. No one thinks they're just average on almost any quality. So we see that people almost have a delusion in thinking they're better than they are when we're quote unquote healthy. So depression actually can make us more realistic in certain ways too. And so I think it's good to look at the potential benefits of what we call mental illness. Not to say you should try to become depressed or try to become manic or anxious because there's going to be some benefits, but recognizing more holistically how it affects the individual overall. Uh, when most people think of something like depression, they just think, okay, remove it, get rid of it. Let's, how do we get rid of it? Medicine is quicker, therapy is quicker. What's the best way? Denying the feelings. What can we do to just remove what's happening? And I think that's actually part of the problem. And in medical terms, yes, usually we will do that, although even that can be an issue. Sometimes something has to run its course in the body or the body has to naturally deal with something. By natural, I don't mean don't do anything medical, but sometimes we can try to get rid of something too quick and that can be a problem. But especially in psychology, we see this happening where people may don't, maybe don't see what's the benefit of what they're going through. Is there any benefit? We're just focused on if something's quote-unquote negative, get rid of it. But many people say that when they went through a depressive episode, they actually came out the other side with a far better understanding of life or there was something very meaningful. There was some meaning in their depression. Even I've I talked about it, I think, once on the show, but I've read some psychologists talking about how they think psycho uh, depression might serve a purpose, which is why we still have it, that people throughout history have experienced depression and they got some kind of meaning out of it that affected their life going forward. And many people do experience exactly that. So my point isn't to say uh, all mental illness is good. If you're suffering or have pain, that's a good thing because we're looking at the pros. No, I absolutely am all about people getting help, seeking treatment, medication, uh, yes, is it overprescribed? Absolutely. But is it necessary or very, very helpful in many situations? Absolutely. We can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say because sometimes there's overdiagnosis, sometimes there's overprescription, the whole thing is bad. And some people do argue that, that the whole field of psychiatry is a hoax or um, is just something the drug companies are trying to push. And I do think, unfortunately, there is the influence of drug companies and health insurance and many other factors that are creating some issues of misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, overprescription. But it doesn't mean the whole field of psychiatry is something evil or bad or doesn't have benefits. It absolutely does. So I'm all about people getting help, seeing a psychiatrist, seeing a psychologist or a therapist and getting help in that way. But I also want us to recognize that with the things we call mental illness, it isn't just a purely bad thing. 
even sometimes people who are manic, or he talks about people who are hyperthymic in the book, a first-rate madness, they can be very uh, creative. They have energy. They can connect things. They can have sometimes the flight of ideas that we consider a symptom of certain illnesses. But if you have flight of ideas, you also can be more creative because more things come to your mind. You're making more connections between things than maybe other people aren't seeing. Or if we look throughout history, we see that many artists had severe mental illnesses, especially a lot of artists had bipolar disorder. And so that the manic phases, um, when you combine those, the darkness of the depressive side and then the uh, extreme energy and high mood and productivity that they have in their manic phases, we can see how that combination actually can create beautiful art. Now, do we want people to suffer in order to create good art? Well, that can be an interesting argument. Overall, I say no, we shouldn't have people suffering to create the art. So again, I wouldn't want to induce mania or uh, give someone manic depression because or bipolar disorder because of the suffering they would likely uh, experience. But when someone is suffering in that way, we can also see that it's not just a purely bad thing. Like almost everything, it's more complex and multifaceted than just to say mental illness is all bad. And even when we hear illness, we can't think of anything good from illness, right? If you say someone got an illness, no positive thoughts come to your mind. And so if you think of mental illness, we just think of all negative. But I think it'd be important to recognize uh, in a more balanced way, what are the potential benefits or the potential ways that that mental illness uh, or the issue they're dealing with actually has created some positives in who they are and how they relate to the world or other people. And that sometimes we can even learn from someone who's mentally ill. Or as uh, Nasir Ghayami says in the book of First Rate Madness, we actually want a leader who has some mental illness because they'll be able to guide us in a time of crisis better than a normal homoclite leader, someone who has had too maybe easy or normal of a life mentally and emotionally might not be prepared or able to handle uh, a stressful or crisis situation. So again, it's a, a way of looking at mental illness. And even if you have it to own that, if you have depression that I don't want you to be suffering, I don't want you to be in pain, but I want you to recognize that there could be also some benefits or something your mental illness is telling you or that you can learn from it. But if we see it as just a purely bad thing, something we have to be ashamed of, something we have to hide, something we have to judge ourselves or others about, or just try to get rid of, we miss the possibility of seeing that there's more to it than just a purely negative, bad thing. And of course, anyone who's dealing with mental illness is not a bad person or just in some way bad. They're dealing with some issues, just like everyone has health issues. We all will have some kind of mental health issues. But I think you can almost take Maybe pride sounds like the wrong word, but in a way have some pride in what you've experienced and maybe what you could have gotten out of it, not just seeing it as a negative, bad thing. So if you had a depressive episode, it probably was a very dark time. I think when I've felt that way, it's very dark. So I don't want to go back there. But I can see how I could have learned a lot, or I did learn a lot from that experience, or even allows me to connect to people in a way that I probably would not be able to do had I not experienced that myself. So when you look back on it, you can see there were some pros to that very dark time as well. And many other mental illnesses have similar features, something positive that comes out of it. All right, we're going into our last segment, studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. 
back. For the last segment, I wanted to talk about an experience I had this weekend that made me think about parenting or, or see a side of parenting that I've talked about on the show, but it was nice to see. So I went to a friend's birthday party and um, I got there kind of late. They started at the park and afterwards we, they went to their house and I met the group there. And there was lots of very cute little kids and babies, uh, part of the group that uh, were wandering around. And I was playing with the kids and playing, you know, with, we're hanging out with the adults. And I saw that the kids would be walking, the very little babies, and they'd be falling. And I'd get a little bit nervous about them falling. And I'd see the parents had little reaction. And even one of them said, oh, you know, they fall. It's okay. And it was actually very nice to see. And I felt like that's a good parenting response. It was clear that this mom uh, loved her kid and it wasn't that she wanted anything bad or didn't care about her kid, but she was aware that she falls and will get up and, and that's okay, that you can't be so worried about every fall, every pain, and let them experience life a little bit, which in theory I've always practiced, but I saw in that moment I was more anxious than these parents. And you could tell these parents having had the experience of having kids for a few years, some of them even have being on their second baby, they were aware of that and aware that they had to give them that freedom and that space to experience life and that that was okay. And so it reminded me of this uh, notion of parenting and the over anxious parent. Sometimes we call them a helicopter parent, uh, but this idea of the, the parenting stance that comes from the overall stance of avoiding pain, removing pain, or even eliminating pain before it happens. And many of us live our lives in this way, or we think that's what life is about, to eliminate pain or remove pain. If something makes you sad, don't do it or see it or whatever it might be, or don't feel that feeling. Sadness isn't good. What's, what's the point of sadness? I was just talking about the even benefits of depression in the previous segment. But take that a step back. People even think, what's the point of being sad? Just be happy. So if you feel sad, don't feel it. So many people go through life with this lack of tolerance for negative feelings or negative emotions or any kind of pain. And they try to avoid it. And they think of pain as so negative and so bad. And then, of course, when it comes to parenting, they take that to even a stronger degree and think that their role as a parent is to prevent any pain for their child, make sure their kid is never hurt in any way, physically, emotionally, whatever it might be, I'm supposed to make sure my kid is never sad. And this is why actually I tell parents, I say, your job is not to make your kids happy. By that, I mean, your job isn't to make sure your kids are happy all the time. Yes, of course, you want to love them and take care of them and be there for them. And in that way, they will probably be happier. But the idea that most parents have is that if my kid is smiling, I'm a good mom or dad. But if they're crying, I'm a bad mom or dad. Or if my kid is having a good day, I'm a good mom or dad. If they're having a bad day, I'm not a good parent. I'm a bad parent. And this is a big problem. We must accept that pain is an inevitable part of life all kinds of pain from physical, emotional, relational pains, heartbreaks, heartaches, whatever it might be, we're going to have those. Not only are they inevitable, in some way they're a beautiful part of life or a part that gives it meaning, it also allows us to grow. There really is truth to the adage of no pain, no gain. If you don't have some difficulty, some discomfort, you'll never grow. I actually was at the gym before I came here to do the show, and anyone works out knows that feeling that if it doesn't hurt a little bit of course this goes to the the uh, 
concept I talked about before about um, pain that is part of growth and pain that is damaging and the difference. So if I'm doing something and my knee is hurting, that's not good. That's bad pain. But if my muscles are getting a little bit sore, sore because there's these micro tears that are going to lead to growth, that's good. That's the only way I'm going to get stronger is to do that. But even as a parent, you have to realize this for your kids. And so many parents think they're doing a good job because they never let their kids get sad. Of course, it's impossible, but at least overtly they try to do that. Of course, your kids are going to get sad. And B, if you show them that's how you feel, they just get sad but don't show it to you, which is even worse. But they feel that they're doing a good job because, oh, you know what? She was going to get sad about this, but I didn't let it happen. Or he got in a fight with a friend at school, but I went in there and I solved it before it got okay. I moved them to another class. And we think that that's good parenting. So the mindset is avoid pain, avoiding discomfort. But we must come to realize that removing all pain and discomfort from our kids' lives is actually not love. It is not in their best interest, even really in the present, but especially for the future. We have to let our kids fall, as those little kids were doing and their parents were okay with, to see that one, it's okay, and B, that they can get up again and they can experience it and that's all right. But if we think we have to avoid the pain, that's the problem. So first we have to accept that life is going to be painful and life is going to be hard, even for us, and that's okay. That it's not an emergency, it's not a crisis. If we're sad or we're down or things are difficult, it's okay. We can get through it. That's a, a comfort of dis, a, a discomfort tolerance that we need to have or distress tolerance. We have to be able to tolerate that sometimes things won't be okay. And then once we internalize that, we have to accept that the same is true for our kids, that they're going to go through difficulties. You know, they're going to go to school and sometimes the kids won't play with them or some kids might tease them or bully them. And our job isn't to remove the bullying instantly. Yes, if they're bullying them and we don't want to just ignore it. So my, you know, some parents, they, when I give them this type of advice, they go to the other extreme and say, you want me to not care, not say anything, ignore my kid? Absolutely not. I'm saying don't go in there and quickly solve it and remove the problem. Make it a learning experience, most of all, but allow the kid to go through the experience also. So talk to your kid. If they come and they say, um, these kids teased me, parents might do one of two things when they come from the overly anxious place and the avoidance of pain place. One is they'll remove the kid from the situation. Okay, we'll switch your class tomorrow. Or I'm going to go talk to the teacher and tell him that kid was bad. So we just want to just take away the problem and solve it for them, which again, one, doesn't let them go through the process of what's going on, and two, doesn't let them have any uh, power or um, experience in what happens and being part of the process. We completely take the power and responsibility away from them. The other thing that many parents do when, when kids come home and they say, oh, you know, kids bothered me, is a very common one is to say, oh, but who cares what people say? Or make other friends. Or it doesn't matter what they say. You got to be confident and just basically say what you experienced was not sad. It was not painful. The kid is saying, I'm hurt. And you're saying, no, you're not. That wasn't painful. Or you shouldn't let it hurt you. Now, yes, we want them to grow the strength and confidence that if they are insulted, they can handle it. But we also don't want to sit there and say, if someone insults you, you, don't, you shouldn't care. Those same parents, I'm sure if they're at a dinner party and in the middle of everyone, someone made a joke and started teasing them, they wouldn't come home and say, I don't care. They would probably be very hurt. They would be upset. They might say something back or maybe they wouldn't, but they would probably be upset the whole night. Maybe wouldn't want to talk to that person. So we have to be realistic and say, first of all, they're 
kids. And second of all, even we would likely not like that experience. I wouldn't like to be hanging out with my friends and some of them make fun of me. It doesn't feel good. So we want to rather than either remove the situation or remove, ignore, or deny the pain, we want to face it. Say, okay, well, they made fun of you. That must, must, that must not have felt very good. What happened? And they tell you more. And now you make it something where you explore and connect with them. And you recognize that, yes, it makes sense it hurts. Of course, it'll break your heart that some kid, you know, made fun of your kid. So you might have the initial reaction of wanting to go and talk to that kid or, or do something to take it away. But we have to allow our kids to fall, to have pain, to have these experiences and talk to them about it, help them grow. Say, well, what do you want to do? What do you think you want to do? Empower them. Let them come up with some solutions. Maybe they ask you and you can give them maybe one, but let them explore with you. Don't just tell them what to do. But most importantly, don't deny their pain. Your first job isn't to make sure they're happy. It's to validate and empathize with, what, with whatever it is they're feeling. So they tell you they're mad. You say, okay, what made you mad? I want to understand. And when they tell you, you say, I can understand that. You don't tell them, oh, why would you get mad about that? Or it feels better to not be mad. So why would you be mad? These things don't make sense. It comes from a place of not wanting them to be upset because we can't handle it. So we have to be able to tolerate that and give them that feeling that whatever they're feeling is okay. Because the truth of the matter is, as much as you want to avoid pain, as much as you want to uh, deny the pain, as much as you want to make it so they never experience anything hurtful, life is going to give them pain. They're going to be hurt sometimes. They're going to be sad sometimes. They're going to be angry sometimes. And your role is to make sure they feel that whatever they're feeling, it is okay. Because if you tell them only happiness is okay, only excitement and fun times is okay, then when inevitably, because every human being will feel that way, they feel sad, they feel that they are bad. Mommy or daddy only wants me to be happy. And look, today I'm sad. So that must mean I'm not good. I'm not okay. Even maybe I'm not lovable as I am because I'm having this bad feeling this feeling that I shouldn't have, that mommy and daddy said don't have it. So what is that kid going to think about themselves? So one, they're going to feel worse about themselves, that I have this feeling that I shouldn't have that makes me maybe weak or bad or whatever it might be. And two, they're going to learn to hide that feeling, especially from you, the parents, but also if they can from themselves, which we know is going to be unhealthy for them long-term when it comes to their emotions and their overall psychology and how they're going to feel. So we want to change that narrative. Pain is going to happen. You don't have to hide it from me because I we can talk about it. Everyone goes through pain. Even sometimes parents will say, they, they say, oh, I use my own childhood to give them advice. You know, kids made fun of me and I didn't care, which is probably not true. Or kids made fun of me too, but it's not a big deal. Look, I'm okay. That doesn't matter either. If you got hit on the leg five years ago, you don't feel it anymore. But when it happened, you said, ow, and you might've put ice on and took care of it. So when you're hurting in the moment, that's when it matters and you have to deal with it and you have to face it and take care of it. So remember as a parent, your job isn't to make them happy. Your job isn't to avoid, make their life, avoid any pain. You want to help them experience things because that's a part of growth. And even this comes down to things like helping them with their homework. You want to help them with their homework, but you got to make sure you're not doing the homework for them, which a lot of parents do. Or if they procrastinate on a project, you might have that hard choice of, do I stay up till 3 a.m. and finish it for them? Or do I let him or her get a bad grade? And it's not that easy of a choice for parents, especially parents who are so obsessed with grades and want to make sure their kids always have good grades, even from an early age. 
they're afraid to let them experience the consequences of their actions that, you know, maybe you didn't start early enough and this is what happens. And I mean, I'm sorry, and I will help you to a reasonable degree, but let's see what happens. And they have to learn that lesson. But what we see is a lot of kids never experiencing negative consequences, negative events, negative things. And then once they get to the real world, once they get older and they face bigger problems, they're totally ill-equipped and can't handle it and don't think they can manage any of that. And they feel like failures if they experience any hardship because they haven't experienced it before. So when you tell yourself, I'm loving my kids by doing everything for them, by not letting them feel pain or not letting them have any hardships, recognize that true love is allowing your kids to go through life, supporting them, loving them, being there for them while you let them take the lead, let them experience what's going on and experience life. True love means letting them fall, letting them get those bumps and bruises, realize that it's okay, they can get back up and walk again and be even stronger the next time. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. Again, the book for this week is Sway by Ori Brafman and Ram Brafman. I'll be talking about that on the show next week. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Thank you.